If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Kayla Stepancic. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher in the University of Buffalo Motor Speech Disorders Lab in Buffalo, New York, and will be transitioning into an assistant professor position there at the University of Buffalo in January. She received her bachelor's degree in speech language sciences at Brock University in Ontario, Canada, her master's degree in communicative disorders and sciences at the University of Buffalo, and her doctoral degree in rehab sciences at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts. She completed her clinical fellowship in speech language pathology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in an acute care setting. Broadly, she's interested in how the brain controls the muscles of speech and swallowing and the perceptual, acoustic, kinematic, and neurophysiological consequences of neurodegenerative disease on these functions. She has a particular interest in the measurement of relevant clinical outcomes, such as speech, intelligibility, and improving therapeutic options to improve the quality of life of patients with oromotor impairment. I just love this conversation with Kayla. She is amazingly brilliant, so, so kind. Um, And of course, we have the University of Buffalo connection as well. Um, Kayla actually is presenting a course for MedSLP education, all about motor speech disorders for the clinician working in a medical setting. It's very clinically relevant. Uh, There's a few hours of all of this underlying knowledge that she talks about, and then a few hours of case-based learning, case studies, Um, So just really, really clinically applicable, and she's a phenomenal teacher. So if you're interested in checking that out, you can go to www.medslped.com forward slash motor speech, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in.
Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Kayla. Hi, Teresa. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Yeah, me too. All right. So tell the people who you are. Great. So uh, my name is Kayla Stepanzik. Um, I am a certified speech language pathologist and I worked clinically in acute care at the University of Wisconsin-Madison before um, I started my PhD. And I finished um, my PhD um, from the MGH Institute of Health Professions about two years ago. And so currently I'm working as a postdoc at the University at Buffalo and will be transitioning into um, a faculty position in January. So I'll be an assistant professor here at the University of oh, Buffalo. Oh, are you staying at UB? Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know if I had told you. Yes, I'm very excited. Yeah, yes. congrats, Kayla. Thank oh. you. Yeah, thanks. those of you listening, I'm a UB undergrad and grad school <laughs> grad, so Kayla is near and dear to my heart for working there. Oh, yeah. Thank oh, you. Awesome. I'm really excited. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's dive into it. So, what, where where should we start with motor speech? Yeah, so I'm really excited um, about putting this course together and talking to this community about motor speech disorders, because I think it's something that in the medical speech language pathology world, um, we don't think about enough. I know I didn't when I was working clinically. And now that I've, you know, gotten into doing research um, and teaching, I've thought a lot more about why we should care about motor speech disorders, especially in medical settings. Yeah. Let's dive in. Cool. Why should we care? Um, why should, yeah. <laughs> so I guess first, the first thing that um, I think a lot about is why just in general, we should care about motor speech disorders. And I always um, like to give kind of a, a scenario so that people can put themselves in the shoes of someone with a motor speech disorder. So imagine that you're sitting around a table with a group of your um, close family and friends, and you're all having great conversations and eating great food. And um, I really think that so many great conversations happen around the table. And now I'd like you to imagine that you have a stroke or a neurodegen neurodegenerative disease and this begins to take your ability to talk naturally. And I just really would like people to think about what that would feel like, mm -hmm. that suddenly you're not comfortable talking to those people that you love the most. And and so soon you stop talking completely because you're just not comfortable with the way that your speech sounds. And I'd like people to think about um, you know, what that does to your sense of self, to, to who you are as a person and the types of interactions that you're able to have. And I just think that that is so devastating. And that's what our patients are going through. And so really thinking about not just, okay, they might sound a little bit different and how much do we care about that, but that that really takes pieces of yourself away from you, um, and from those that you love the most. And so, I just really think that motor speech disorders are are this thing that we really should be thinking more about and thinking more about how we can help our patients to to bring those pieces of their life back to them. Yeah, I, I love that so much, Kayla. I think that's that's sort of one of my I try not to like live in regret, but that's one of my big regrets about working in skilled nursing is that I, I really sort of went down this dysphagia rabbit hole, learned everything I could about swallowing and swallowing disorders. And meanwhile, I would have patients that visibly, audibly 
had motor speech disorders and I just didn't have the tools to treat them. I, you know, would pick them up for swallowing and that's what we would work on. And in the back of my brain, I'm like, crap, I really, this is my jam, but I really don't know this stuff. So. Right. And honestly, yeah. yeah, honestly, that's what I did too when I worked clinically and, and now think too about what, there are so many things that I could have done differently. Right. And so that's why I'm excited about putting this course together, just simple things that clinicians can be doing. Even when I completely understand that, you know, swallowing is maybe a more immediate concern for sure in those types of settings, you know, but what are some of those small little pieces that we can bring in, in those settings in easy ways? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Let's, let's dive into it. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Um, So I guess my second piece there that I had mentioned was, you know, why should we as medical speech language pathologists care about motor speech disorders? And, and I think that there are a few reasons and, um, I'll talk about this more in the course, but I think that, um, thinking and diagnosing motor speech disorders in an acute care setting or in a rehab setting can, can benefit us in a few ways. I think one of them is that it really can help, uh, the team lead towards a diagnosis because we have these really great hypotheses about speech system, subsystem impairments and um, neurological uh, lesions or brain sites that might be impacted, what we hear as speech language pathologists can really help the team looking at a diagnosis. If these are, you know, if there's a particular set of um, impairments that we hear, then we can say, oh, this is where maybe this brain, what brain region might be involved. You know, it can even, we probably, we think about this a lot with dysphagia too, is if we see these symptoms, you know, what are, what are our next steps? Who do we want to consult, right? And if we see someone at the bedside and we say, oh, we're hearing this, you know, who is, who is the next person that we, that we want to consult then? So I really think it can help with furthering, um, assessment and the, the evaluation procedures for the team, which I think is really exciting. And we have a really big role to play in that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think too, like thinking back about my clinical practice and I think that having thought, if I had thought more about motor speech disorders while I was doing those evaluations, I think there are lots of things that could go hand in hand with swallowing and eating and motor speech disorders. Of course, we know, you know, there's this a lot of controversy about speech and non-speech movements and brain regions that are involved. And for sure, they're, you know, those, they're very specific and specialized uh, motor activities that we do. But also there, we are dealing with the same structures and the same anatomy and some of the same physiology, right? And so just as a simple example, I guess, thinking about if someone has flaccid dysarthria and their tongue seems to be moving really slowly and that impacts their intelligibility, we can also think about, well, what might that implicate for eating and for swallowing, right? And so I do think that there are clues that we can take both from speech and from swallowing to serve the other purpose and to help us with best um, assessing and managing that patient. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm excited to talk more about that because that's something that I, I always was fascinated by when people could do that. And I just didn't have the skills to do that. So I mean, I'm really, not great at it either, but <laughs> I really just, I have so much respect for clinicians that, that will sort of do that sort of like all in one assessment and break down the different areas. And I just, 
yeah, it's, it's what I strive to be when I grow up. So me too, yeah. <laughs> honestly. And you know, I think a lot about that when I'm teaching too, is like we teach our students in these silos. We all talk about this, right? And so of course we, when we grow up into speech pathologists, that's how we think. And we think, okay, I'm just going to assess dysphagia right now. I'm just going to assess speech, but I'm really interested in, and I, I think there isn't a ton of research out there, but I think hopefully we're moving in this direction where we can do, do these things in tandem. I think it's really exciting and necessary. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, I guess, sort of like the big elephant in the room, the, the like limitations of assessing motor speech disorders. So everyone says it's too time consuming. It's, I don't have the time to deal with that in a really fast paced medical setting. Yeah. It's a great question. Yes. So assessing motor speech disorders can be time consuming, but I'd like to argue that it doesn't have to be and that there are some fast assessment tools that um, we have found in the research world to be very sensitive and specific to um, motor speech disorders and I think can easily be done at the bedside. And so I'm really looking forward to talking about those things and and kind of getting the most bang for your buck. What are, you know, if I was going to suggest you take five minutes to assess motor speech disorders, what are those pieces? How do you, you know, collect, how do you collect that kind of data? And then how do we um, evaluate and interpret that data? Yeah, awesome. Certain things are, or some things that clinicians are already doing, I think, an oral neck exam um, is one that we do all the time. And and like we were talking about, when you are, are thinking about this person and just from, say, a swallowing standpoint, you might miss those pieces that will lead you to a motor speech evaluation as well. And so how can you use the oral mech exam that you're already doing um, to help you assess speech as well? So just adding some pieces on, I think, or thinking about what the task that you're doing in a slightly different way. Some of the other things that I would always suggest is doing a diadocokinetic task or DDK. There's a lot of information we can glean from that. And so we'll talk a little bit about how to do that and what are the best uh, measures to pull from that. Something also simple that, that I wish I would have done more of is, is recording our patients, um, recording their speech as soon as you see them, you know, saying, is this okay? I just, you know, want to get um, an example of your speech so that we can listen to it later. I think that's huge and such an easy thing to do because you're already talking to them. You could have them, you know, tell you um, a brief story, ask them a few questions. And then um, not only can you go back and listen to that and that can help with your assessment and your your documentation, but then also if you're going to be seeing that patient for a while, bringing that back after you treat them for a little bit um, and being able to show them the improvements. I think that that that's a really powerful thing to do and something that, you know, we all have phones in our pockets now. So really easy to to take a quick 30 second, one minute recording of your patient. Yeah. So hopefully I'll have some some pretty simple things that will get you a lot of information. Awesome. Can we back up and talk about the DDK rates a little bit? If if you I just would like for you to elaborate a little bit for if some people aren't using them or don't realize the vast amount of knowledge that we can get from those. Yeah, great. The DDK is a very simple task, but I think also has to be administered appropriately or using the, the correct instructions. And so we ask patients or research participants to take a deep breath and to say the syllable pa as quickly and accurately as possible on that one breath. 
And so it sounds a little bit like and then they'll go as long as they can. Some people will only take it for 10 seconds. And we we have found in some research, uh, particularly with uh, individuals with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, that duration can sometimes be a really good indication, particularly say respiratory support or laryngeal valving, things like that. But so we do, we administer that task. I would typically say record it because trying to count on the fly is really, really hard. I know lots of clinicians do that. I used to do that too, you know, count with your fingers of how many times is someone saying it, but it really would take, you know, 30 seconds to record, go back to your office, look really quick at, you could throw it into even a free recording or a free application on your computer to say, um, this is how many productions they did in this amount of time. So a really simple task, but also gets at kind of all of the subsystems. It can help you distinguish between uh, dysarthria and apraxia, or to say, you know, there's some dysarthric features here, some apraxic features here, and can give us a lot of information. I think the the controversial, you know, opinion is always that it's not really speech, it's speech-like, um, which I absolutely agree with. But I think we've found there's a lot of benefits to using it. And it's it's what we would call a maximum performance task, right? We're pushing the speech motor system as, as hard as we can and saying, um, if we push it to its limits, how does it do? Because some people can compensate pretty well um, when they're just talking normally, right? But when you say, okay, now move as quickly as you can, that's where you see the breakdown often. And so um, to get maybe at some of those more subtle motor speech features, the the DDK is a really nice task. Yeah. Let let me ask you, because I think, you know, in the swallowing world, it's, we sort of, we love to sort of play that detective and figure out Okay, are they overcompensating or or are they just compensating themselves? I shouldn't say overcompensating, just compensating themselves. In which case, sometimes that's the answer. You know, they resolve their own problem. You know, is that something that you think of in motor speech as well? If if they are compensating, is that, how am I trying to say that? Is that an issue? Like, do we want to correct that? Or is it good that they figured out a way to compensate? That's a great, great question. Um, I think we haven't thought as much about that in motor speech. For sure, people have um, talked about it a little bit, but I don't think we have great answers for what does compensation even look like in a speech motor disorder. But I do definitely, from my perspective anyways, think that if patients are able to compensate for whatever impairment they're experiencing, then I say that's great. <laughs> and And if it works for them from a effort perspective. So I think a lot about um, how much effort patients are using to implement the strategies that we give them. And so, for example, if someone, say, had a stroke and they're they're using a compensatory strategy just by themselves, but that they're feeling like it's really effortful and that it's something they're not going to be able to continue using, then maybe we want to reevaluate and try something different. And so I think yeah, compensation is great um, if if it's working for them. And that, that's an excellent question, though. I like that. Cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I just ask questions on here and I'm like, there's either a lot of people that are going to think I'm a total like space cadet or there's some people that are gonna be like, that's a great question, Tracy. No, it's great. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crapshoot. It's always a crapshoot. Yeah, crap whatever. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks, Kayla. Something else that I think clinicians can and should be collecting um, and reporting on as part of a motor speech evaluation is intelligibility. And so I'm sure most of you are familiar with what that is, but um, just so we're all on the same page, I like to think about it as the amount um, of the acoustic signal that a listener can recover from a speaker. So basically, how much can a listener understand of what a speaker is saying? And I'm uh, really interested in intelligibility as a, as a measurement tool. Um, we often use it to track progress in therapy or decline in neurodegenerative disease. There are lots of challenges to in measuring intelligibility in the research world and even more so in the clinical world because of how time consuming it often can be. And so typically what we would do is have a patient read, um, say, a bunch of sentences out loud. Those would be recorded. And then we'd take them back and we'd have another listener listen to those, write down what they hear, and then we'd get a percentage of words correct. And so that's historically kind of the gold standard for how we measure intelligibility in the research world. But that just isn't practical from in, a, in the clinical, particularly in yes. a fast Sounds case. great in your ivory tower, Kayla. Uh, yes. Absolutely. I get it. Um, particularly in a fast-paced clinical setting, right? That's just not going to happen. And so we don't have a lot of great research for kind of what's the best alternative um, in terms of from a clinical perspective. But we do have some literature that says that a visual analog scale, um, so using a, a scale that's, um, you know, just a line on a piece of paper or on a computer, an app that is a set number, uh, a set length, and then you would just kind of use a slider or put an X on the line for how intelligible you think they are. So from not intelligible at all to I can understand everything. Um, and so we have some literature saying that that um, is actually really highly correlated with the transcription intelligibility that I just talked about. And so that seems like a really easy and fast alternative that gives us an objective, more objective measure of intelligibility. Um, we still don't really have great research. You know, I know a lot of clinicians will say, you know, this person sounds about 75% intelligible and that's what they end up putting in their documentation. And we don't have great research saying whether that is a good proxy, but hopefully looking at that in the future and how, how well that does um, at telling us about someone's intelligibility. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you think as a researcher, like, like you said, we all just sort of in, in the clinical setting, just give it a lucky guess, like a, just a stab at this is how percent intelligible they are today. I am curious to hear your, I guess, perception of that. You know, are, are we doing our field just a horrible injustice or is it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, I, you know, I hate the saying it's how it's always been done, but it is how it's always been done. You know, you just pick the, you know, the box and the, you know, in the goal bank on the computer that just says, you know, oh, today they're 75% intelligible as opposed to yesterday they were 60% intelligible. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you all could see Kayla's face right now on the computer. <laughs> yes. No, no, it's a, no, it's a great question. My, my, my face is because I wish that we knew, you know, I've talked to some colleagues about being interested in looking at that. And so I, I certainly think that's an area that I'm even interested in, in looking at in the future. Um, I, 
worked on a study during my PhD with a great master's thesis student, and we looked at clinicians rating severity ratings. And so we had a bunch of clinicians listen to a lot of people with um, ALS, and we said, how severe is this person? And we had them pick um, a, la- a label out of five. So either they had normal speech, mild, moderate, severe, or profound. And I was pleasantly surprised at how um, reliable clinicians were, both with themselves and with each other. I think that's a hard, <laughs> a hard task, right? And I always am like, I don't know if I would agree with myself, right? And so that was actually really great and really exciting because I think using something like that actually seems, um, one, very easy <laughs> for clinicians and two, like it actually is doing a pretty good job. We also found them to be really valid. So they were really highly related to the, a transcription measure of intelligibility uh, as well as speaking rate. So how fast someone is speaking, which is another measure that we use in research settings a lot. And so that was really exciting. And so I would be interested in looking at the, the like number, like uh, percentage ratings, like you were talking about of, oh, this person sounds 60% intelligible. I would, you know, guess based on that research that clinicians are probably pretty good at that. I mean, there are a lot of factors, you know, that go into that. But um, I think that research in particular is really shows that is really promising to show that clinicians are good at it, which is really exciting. And that's not to say that I didn't think clinicians would be good at it. Yeah, I just, you know, whenever I do listening tasks, I'm always like, oh, I think I did a terrible job at this. Like, I think my reliability is terrible. Because, you know, we're, we make mistakes, we're fallible humans and, um, listening to speech is challenging, right? And so it was exciting to see how well our wonderful clinicians did. Yeah, cool. That's fascinating. So another thing, uh, that comes up a lot when, when thinking about motor speech disorders is the treatment of motor speech disorders. And, This is obviously going to depend a lot on what setting people are in. So I worked in the acute care setting and there isn't a ton of time for for treatment, as most of you probably know there. Um, But then, you know, we can think about people who are also working in more long term settings and that there certainly is time. And that's what we want to do is to, to treat those motor speech disorders in those settings. And I think a lot about how our assessment of motor speech disorders leads us into our treatment of those motor speech disorders. And so um, I think those will go hand in hand really nicely in the course, um, depending, you know, on what are the types of or what are the perceptual features? What are you hearing in this person's speech? And what does your oral mech exam tell you about their speech? What does their TDK tell you about their speech? And then what are those are the features that we want to work on in treatment? Um, and there are more, you know, these more global behavioral treatments that I think uh, from what the research tells us and from my own opinion, that those are kind of the ones that are going to give us the most improvement in not the shortest amount of time, but maybe the least amount of effort for the patient. Sometimes, you know, we could throw, we think about this in swallowing too, right? We say, okay, you're going to do this. Um, you're going to do 
this consistency with this position, with these techniques, that's just a lot for patients to remember, right? And so I think about that a lot um, when we're talking about treatment for motor speech disorders is, you know, to say, okay, we need to work on your breath support. And then we also need to work on um, your articulation and your resonance. Like patients are just not going to remember all of that. It's hard for us to remember. And so uh, one technique, for example, would be using clear speech. And that's really simple and it's encouraging patients to talk as clearly as possible. Maybe um, using the example of you're talking to someone with a hearing impairment or you're talking on the telephone. Um, and so making all of your consonants and vowels as distinct as possible. Um, and so that's a technique that's shown a lot of promise um, in the research. And um, during the course but my course will talk a lot about the principles of motor learning and how um, those are incorporated into treatment. But I think that those types of treatments are really um, nice for our patients because they're simple. They involve one goal and can easily be used outside of outside of the, the treatment setting as well in their everyday life. There are other behavioral techniques we can use with people with motor speech disorders, um, which we'll talk about. And I just think that those right now are the ones that are, again, going to give us the most bang for our buck. And particularly if we're not seeing someone for a, a huge amount of time. And also, how can we um, maybe train their spouse or their caregiver to help implement those strategies at home? Yeah. I feel like I hope so. I just got flooded with questions. I want oh, to ask. please. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I just always sort of go back to, you know, like evidence-based practice model and like patient preference and stuff like that. And I know it's very important not to overload or overwhelm our patients with different techniques and strategies. Do you sort of, is this something that you would talk to them about all the different possibilities and just sort of say, you know, which one aligns with you or which one feels right to you or feels the easiest to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Cause I think that's something that like SLPs, I think we do, we do a poor job of putting all of that responsibility on ourselves. Like I think we say like, okay, I have to work on resonance first. Then we have to work on articulation. And I think we put the pressure on ourselves and it takes a lot of the pressure off when we actually ask the patient what they want to work on. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I totally agree. I think one of the big pieces that I've thought a lot about over the past couple of years is patient education as part of our motor speech evaluation. I think I never did a great job of explaining what's going on with your speech. Why does your speech sound this way? And then what is the goal of treatment? Like what does the patient actually want to come out of this? I think that's the first step that that we're missing is, you know, maybe intelligibility isn't their primary goal. Maybe they want to sound really natural. Maybe that's more important to them. And we kind of know that there is this trade-off between intelligibility and naturalness, for example. So you can make someone sound very understandable, but maybe their speech isn't going to sound natural then. And how much does the patient care about that? Um, in some settings, they might say, oh yeah, I just want people to understand me no matter what it takes, right? Versus as other people might say, I want to sound like myself, whether people totally understand me or not. And so that's kind of, I think, the first step. And then talking about exactly like you said, what are the what are the techniques that we can use to get there? For example, we can use, you know, pacing boards to help with someone who has, say, a very fast rate. But that's going to be maybe a little bit unnatural, 
also a little might be odd to be bringing, say, a board around with you. And so maybe that's not something that the patient wants to use. And so what are the next uh, what or what is the next technique we can think of? Right. And so involving the patients in that decision process, I think, is really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about like, especially now that we're sort of coming out of COVID, but so many people dove into like teletherapy. And I just think there's such a potential for to reach so many more patients with motor speech disorders through teletherapy. But then we also do miss those actual like the tools of having the patient in front of us. But I do think there's probably perceptual characteristics that you can glean online, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's been some uh, some research over the past couple of years looking at that. And I'm trying to think I don't know that a lot has come out yet about perceptual features, although I do know that there are people working on that right now and and looking at and recruiting listeners to do that. Um, I know that people have, some researchers have looked at acoustic features and have found a lot of them to be very highly correlated between in-lab and, and on, say, Zoom. And so that uh, you know, leads me to believe that perceptual features will also be very will be fine in that set setting situation as well. And so I think, yeah, I think there's a huge role for teletherapy in motor speech disorders. And and there's a lot that we do without, I think even more than swallowing that we can do without touching the patient at yeah, all. Yeah. Right. I just think of all the research that could be done just yeah, I mean through Zoom, you oh, know. Yeah. I'm starting to think about that as I as I begin to start my lab and decide what I want to do, thinking about reaching a lot of people with different motor speech disorder, different etiologies, tele or using um Zoom to do that, I think um would be a really big benefit and to patients as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how am I trying to word this? So I think of some of these patients with like these neurodegenerative conditions, like ALS, things like that. What is the, you know, I guess we're, we're always sort of facing the payer sources and pace and, and facing the, you know, the billing models. What, how do you justify treatment for these, for these disorders? Are they, is it acceptable? Yeah. 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 That's a, it's a tough one for sure. I mean, yeah. So I think, I think maintenance obviously is, is the goal in those cases. And particularly, I think from a quality of life standpoint, right? Helping our patients to have those, even, even if it's a couple of words, a couple, right? A couple of sentences that they can still, still use. And how does that impact their quality of life? We have, we have now um, a really great scale for motor speech disorders looking at communicative participation. And so I think using that as the primary outcome, right, of of whatever therapy you're offering, um, I think is the way to go. And again, that goes back to goal setting with your patients, right? And is the goal intelligibility or is it how I feel like I'm able to participate in my daily life. And I argue that that's way more important than any of the other things, right? I think something else that goes hand in hand with motor speech disorders, particularly in neurodegenerative diseases, is alternative means of communication, right? And I'm not an expert in that at all, but we do thinking about motor speech disorders and about when is speech not understandable anymore? Making the decisions with your patients about when 
AAC should be introduced and how it should be introduced, I think is super important. And something, again, that I didn't think enough about, I think, when I worked clinically was how can my evaluation for motor speech disorders lead into um, an AAC evaluation and, and, and intervention? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Again, it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but just ways that I wish I could have been a better clinician. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Did that answer your question about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so I guess my question is really, you know, how, how do you justify that to, you know, to the payer sources? Is that, is it, do you usually just go the maintenance route? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. And being, yeah, I think that's the only way way you can go really. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. It is tough. It is. (laughs) Yeah, so let's let's talk about a an article that was a game changer for you in your practice, Kayla. Sure. So um the one that I've keep coming back to is by Olmstead um at all in uh, I should know what year it is. Twenty twenty? Yes, in twenty twenty. Um it's about the it's called the role of the speaker, the listener, and their joint contributions during communicative interactions. It's a, a viewpoint piece in JSLHR. Um but what I really like about it is thinking about speech as this interaction between the speaker and the listener and then the context that they're in. So often in motor speech disorders research and in clinical practice, we think about changing the speaker and changing the way that they're using their speech to help them be more intelligible. Um, but this article really argues for thinking about the speaker and the listener and what they both bring to the table. And this is not a novel concept. Many people have talked about it for, for many years, but um, I think this is a really, this article in particular is a really good summary of, of how to think about that and, and how to think about the fact that it's not just the speaker and the listener individually, but it's their joint interaction. And that that is different than just say, okay, I'm going to listen to the speaker and then let's go talk to the listener and then we can figure it out. It's, it's actually looking at what patients are doing with their communicative partner and how that leads them to or how they can meet their goals, I guess, um, is a way to look at it. And so I think that there's a really big role to play in uh, for clinicians looking at, again, not just the speaker, but who are they going to be talking to? What do those contexts look like? Um, and how can we support and facilitate those communication events? Yeah, I think that could be a, a really nice way to go, particularly for, say, people um, with a motor speech disorder who won't benefit from our behavior, traditional behavioral therapies or have, or they haven't been working for those people. How can we then use the listener, um, to help make some more improvements and, and what are some, some ways that we can help facilitate that? Interesting. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's a good, love, it's a good one. Perspective. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Kayla. I love, I love your perspective on really just sort of. The whole psychosocial dynamic of all of it as well. Yeah. I think that's so important. Yeah. And I, I just really like to think about what that would feel like for me or for a loved one. Right. Cause that really, I think puts us in the position to think about what this, what our interaction then with our patients and their family members should look or could look like, I think in, in a way that 
supports them and helps them to meet their goals. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kayla. Any, any final thoughts? We cover it all. I don't think so. I think that's okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.